You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. All right, welcome in to another episode of Fox and Faust, the podcast. No, we weren't on a COVID break, but uh, we've uh, gathered ourselves here to uh, to get another episode for you. Uh, ahead on this week, the NHL heads outdoors. We also have uh, one of our own uh, who's uh, experienced a little, um, maybe not actual outdoors in terms of the Lake Tahoe thing, but we're going to talk Mystery Alaska. Uh, one thing that uh, has come up interestingly, teams off of COVID pauses have had relative success upon their return. Um, but Jim, I want to first kind of ask you what's on your your mind this week uh, as we uh, enter a weekend where the NHL is going to be playing outdoors. Uh, it seems like COVID cases around the league are down. The Kings are winning games. Like it's all good news. One thing on my mind right now, and it's a huge relief for me compared to past years. As we speak, which is the 19th of February, I have completed my tax preparation and I am ready to hand it in to my tax preparer. Look at you. Eager beaver. That, that normally happens April 15 <laughs> at 3 p.m. Enough to get it into the post mock. Well, they do it electronically nowadays, but I'm way ahead of schedule. Jeez. So that's what's on my mind. I had a lot of time, like everyone's had a lot of time on their hands to do things. So, yeah. I'll give you something to do at home to pass the time. I remember that was what kept me occupied last summer was all the bookkeeping for like uh, self-employment or freelance employment. And I uh, I started, uh, I picked up QuickBooks and I started all that. And, and I was learning, like relearning my freshman year accounting class in college. It was, <laughs> that, that took up way too much time, but it passed the time over the summer, I guess, you know, in between Netflix and reading a book or walking outside. Maybe you get to, to use something. You get to use something from your education. Oh, geez, yeah, that's that's one of the one of the few things I've I've used for for my degree. One <laughs> um, one thing we'll also get to on a podcast this week. Uh, you had a chance to catch up with Ray Ferraro, a former King, a longtime NHL broadcaster. He can talk forever. Uh, he's a good friend of ours. Uh, but I, I I understand that it wasn't that long a conversation. What happened? No, we like to keep it, you know, short and sweet. We like to make sure that everything is is tight mm. and to the point. Well, short being the emphasis in that conversation. I'm setting you up as I just did, so you uh, you hit it out of the park. Well, that's the long and short of it, I guess. Uh, but we begin today. I, I got an interesting email from um, from Major League Baseball. Uh, I go to a Dodger game or an Angel game uh, once or twice every year and i guess i'm on their mailing list for whatever and i got a survey and i i don't recall ever seeing one of these from the nhl uh, and, and understandably so because nhl being indoor arenas the season kind of was very very quickly put together we didn't know when we were going to start uh, but mlb this is in february right and spring training pitchers and catchers have already reported but mlb is going through the process right now of asking fans about their comfort level 
And, and I wanted to click through the survey that they sent out um, asking fans, you know, what would make you want to attend a game? You know, how do you feel about how the government is handling coronavirus cases in your area? You know, what, 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 how worried are you? And I just thought it was a fascinating window into how professional sports teams are approaching kind of the next phase of where we're going. Because this year, no fans at Staples Center to, to start. We're, we're still hoping that by the end of the year, we can get some in there by, you know, maybe vaccinated healthcare workers or something. Um, but really, the focus for the NHL is on next year in the fall. And I, I found it interesting to go through and click through uh, some of these survey questions. But I, I'll, I'll put it out there, Jim, to you. Kind of, if you were, you know, you're, you're 60, uh, you're right on the cusp of, of getting your vaccine whenever the next tranche is out. What, what is the number one thing on your mind if, let's say, you were interested in going to a baseball game this summer? Like, what, what would make you comfortable here? The thing that would make me comfortable is knowing that the facility I'm going to are enforcing the rules they're asking everyone to abide by. Okay. Because, you know, you get in there and you get a whole bunch of people, you get in a certain section. And then when you get there, you as the fan cannot be the enforcer of those rules. So that's, that's the biggest thing that comes to mind to me is how to make my entertainment experience as pleasurable as possible which means I don't have to think about enforcing rules because I assume mm -hmm. some people will forget or bend the rules or do it, you know, right. and I just want to, and you know, if I'm there, that means I've agreed to the rules they've set forth, but I want to make sure they're enforced and, the, and they have the proper staffing and they handle it the correct way. Well, it's just like the, the fine print on the back of a ticket, right? Of, uh, you know, the release of liability when you get hit by a ball or a hockey puck at a, at a rank but also that you're going to abide by the rules and if you don't you can get ejected from the game like that that's still not changing and and we've heard actually the florida panthers who have brought fans into their arena they've actually had to eject people who haven't been um you know good about following those rules either with you know mask in the concourse or whatever it is um yeah. but they've been serious about it, which I like, like this is good. This, in, this instills confidence in me that things are going to go according to plan. At least, at least at the beginning to the point where I don't have to bring it to the attention of any staff members or right. any people, any ushers or, you know, so the, I would hope the facility would be expending even more resources into making sure the manpower is there to enforce these things mm -hmm. without me having to turn around. Not, you know, I'm sure they're not going to see everything right away, the, you know, but they just have the, a process in place that they can right. see it, acknowledge it, address it. There is there are a series of interesting questions here. And it's it it made me scratch my head of like, well, why are you asking this? Because they so they asked you in this survey to uh, to rate with your own um standard what is low risk moderate risk or high risk and the questions were like well is uh, what about traveling by taxi eating in an outdoor restaurant eating in an indoor restaurant standing on a line with others going to a movie theater is hugging to you considered low risk moderate risk high risk and i could just picture a a front office business side of a team going through and looking at these and then, and then constructing the rules based on what they get in terms of feedback. So if, if they get an overwhelming majority of people who say, yeah, I don't have a problem eating in an outdoor restaurant, well, maybe 
the rules would then be constructed in such a way, well, you can eat in your seat. We are allowing concessions, uh, which some indoor arenas are doing. Um, my, it, my, my, you know, interesting thought about going through this is there was a question in here of how worried are you about the, the current situation that we're in? And I, I found that kind of interesting. And I, I wonder, because they're going to slice it out by age. Are, are you worried by going to an outdoor facility if people follow the rules? Or are you kind of assuming that risk when you walk in the door? We're all going to assume some risk. That's the obvious one. Uh, once again, I think it is up to me to abide by those rules. Am I worried? I think by my answer on the first part of the question, I know that there will be people not abiding. So it needs to be addressed in a friendly manner, as friendly as possible. Um, but uh, once I make that decision to go, Mm -hmm. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to do what they need, but I'm not going to be worried. I'm going to go and enjoy myself. Maybe easier said than done, but that's the way I feel right now. Uh, you know, you can really do a lot of things to make sure. Now, of course, which you just brought up, the vaccine issue will be, you know, that, that will be the, that's where the line comes to an area where if, if we can all get Sure. Everyone vac vaccinated then, you know, I think that the comfort level just goes through the roof right away at that point. And, and I'm sure there's studies already right now ongoing of, you know, how effective is it going to be? Is it living up to the success mm -hmm. rate? Um, the percentages, all of those things. And at the same time, um, there'll be studies and studies and studies and studies, how it's working, long-term effects, uh, side effects, all these things. But uh, I think that we can even, you know, even without the vaccine, of course, I'm not vaccinated yet. You're, you're not either. You, you're getting, you get into situations in your daily life where you have to, you know, that's, that's different than going to an event where you're going to sure. have, let's say 20,000 people. And, and to be honest, outdoor versus indoor is still to me, you know, a big difference. So mm -hmm. if it's outdoor, I feel much more comfortable uh, than indoor. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And if you get the, email or uh, or whatnot it's it's a really good click through to it to force you to think about would i be comfortable going to a game in april would i be comfortable going to a game three months from now six months from now uh you know what what is my priority in terms of um like contactless payment versus specific entry and exit times would you want a locker pickup for concessions uh, would you want pre-wrapped food and drink versus somebody who's making it themselves? Um, do you, you know, would staff wearing protective gloves and masks make you feel safer? And, and I, I wonder too, how much of this, at least for the next few years, is going to go beyond the, the nuts and bolts of actually what is safe and what's not. And arenas, ours included, making an investment in making you feel safe. So it may not make a difference that we're wiping down handrails. I mean, it, you talked about a couple of weeks ago, the self-cleaning buttons in the elevators at Staples Center. Who knows if that makes a difference or not, but, but it makes you feel safer, right? No question. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. So when it becomes necessary, someone will invent something to make sure it works better. And, mm. and I, I, that's the one thing that I'm 
call me patriotic or whatever, I believe the United States will continue and they will take the lead in that area. They yep. will find ways to invent. Like even you were just saying, I, we already have it, the contactless payments. We already have that. I don't really use it that much. I have it. Now I'm going to use it. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then who knows what further is going to be done as far as innovation. I did, I did find it funny by the end of the survey, they asked if you want the universal DH or not, <laughs> which will get an insane insight into Throw it at you. <laughs> demographics and like what you like about the game, what you don't, but that's a separate story for, uh, for, I guess the summer once hockey season is done uh, on to hockey topics. Now, this is something that came up um, uh, during the week. And actually it, we, we showed it in our uh, telecast earlier this week when the Kings were at home Minnesota was coming off of a COVID pause and we've seen all these teams around the league, whether it be Dallas at the start of the season, New Jersey recently, uh, Minnesota recently, uh, Philadelphia has played a couple of like teams that come off the pause and remember they're, they don't have access to their rink. The facility is shut down for several days, come back, practice for a few days and they rip off wins. Like nothing happened. How, what is happening here? Yeah. It's it's something I put a lot of thought into since Dallas had to do it right at the beginning of the season. And I'll be completely honest. I don't think I'm any closer to ha coming up with an answer than I was when I first started thinking about it. The thing in the back of my mind is this, is that everyone else is operating in unusual circumstances even if they're still practicing and playing, they're not getting the same, I think, quality of practice. They're not getting the same focus in practice. So maybe that the chasm that should be a huge divide is not as big as it normally would be. So even the teams that are practicing and playing, uh, you know, don't have that, that huge advantage they would have compared to a normal situation. Uh, but again, you're like at the beginning of the year when Dallas has it happen, because you could think at some point, you know, a team comes back and they end up playing a team that's in the midst of the worst part of their schedule sure. and they're fatigued yeah. and they're so the, the fresh team wins, regardless of whether they have rust or not. But that really wasn't the case. I mean, you, you don't have that. So right. Nashville had been playing with, I think they had three or four games in the books by the time Dallas played. And on night one, they spanked them seven, nothing or seven, one. And I think swept the series against Nashville. And they, they ripped off a bunch of yeah. like the question that comes to mind for me, is this a validation for the bye week existing on the calendar that it's not that harmful because every year out of the bye week especially because not every team they've, they've tried to do a, a good job of, of matching teams that have both been off for an extended period of time but every year out of the bye week we heard you know we hear players going down to Cabo for five days and then they come back and they're out of shape I, I wonder like does this make it even more of a case for the for the players association to want to Keep the bye week. I hate it personally, but then again, I don't go yeah. down to Cabo for five days. The, the, the numbers though you're talking about, Alex, when when they didn't, when they first did the bye week, they were not able to, or they didn't think about the possible ramifications of rested team versus a team that's been playing, and the, the teams coming off the break at different times. 
the winning percentage for the team that was still playing was through the roof. I mean, the teams that had taken time off just did not win those first one or two games. They just, now, as you mentioned, the league has done a much better job there. So they kind of do the divisional issue where, you know, basically as much as possible, when you do come back, you're playing a team that was in the same circumstance as you were. Mm. So that, that makes it, I, I think what you're describing right now is just, it just kind of maybe even validating what I had in my mind about this is so unique and rare. It's tough to come up with a, a database of information that you can use in coming years. Mm. It, it just might not apply. It might not apply in, in coming years. Um, I think there's, I don't think there's any question that you need a break though. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're right. I, I think that's a, that's, and, and it, I know we talk about it all the time and I think more people are putting more thought into this area, but the mental break as much as anything, just there is a recharge there and it may take you a couple of games to get going again, but when you do now you're recharged and, and the quality of play goes up. Mm. There, uh, I've heard from guys during the summer that they say they take two or three weeks off. I mean, I know we're a workaholic uh, culture in the United States, and, uh, and and we're not as good as countries around the world at providing, uh, you know, paid vacation. And this is I'm talking about your, your your regular nine to five jobs. But to hear players say they only take in the summers two to three weeks off. I mean, in your day. How long did you actually take off from skating, from working out, from training before you got into the next season? Yeah, skating was the big thing. I think nowadays, and it starts when you're a kid. So that's the biggest difference. When I grew up, my first three or four years playing, we did not have an indoor arena. Mm. So we couldn't play past April. Mm. You know, end of March, early April, that's when, you know, you, you still have snowfall. North of Toronto, Coniston, Ontario, 200 miles north. So it was still cold, but, you know, the ice starts to degrade at about that point. So you just didn't have that. We didn't. Nowadays, so when you're a kid, you play your season, you do this, you have your coaches in the summer, you have your special team, you know, skills coach, skating coach, shooting coach, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But so now you have a 12-month year-round thing. As far as skating, for me, it was probably two months completely off. Didn't put the skates on at all, but uh, even as dark ages as I was when you know I played way back, you know, you take two or three days off. That that's it. Then you're riding a bike. You're doing something. You, you, you I don't think I went more than a week at the longest without jogging around the block. Uh, you know, two mile here, jumping on a bike up the hills in Palos Verdes you know, get, making sure you have the steep climbs. And, you know, so you, I was doing something. And, and, you know, back at home, I, I was part of a, a weightlifting club in the summer. Uh, so we had we had uh, Kevin Roy, a friend of ours. He was the uh, Commonwealth champion, Canadian champion in weightlifting. So, you know, learned a lot back then. Uh, so we were always doing something. But, uh, yeah, skating nowadays, <laughs> they probably skate 300 days a year. Yeah. Uh, that's what was so unique about the summer. And I, I can't help but think, especially with the start that Dustin Brown has had to this season, I cannot help but think of the comment he made uh, during training camp to us, which was this summer was the longest in his adult life, not since he was a really little kid. 
longer than he can even remember that he had gone without skates on his feet at some point. And it was a couple months for him. And I, I just, I wonder, you know, we haven't, I, I don't know about you. I haven't heard about um, a lot of injuries around the league, um, at least anecdotally, right? Uh, it, they happen. They're part of the sport. But, but I, I wonder if it almost gets to the point now, it, I don't, players association would never agree to, you know, t- curtailing their own activities. Everybody wants to be better. Everybody wants to, you know, c- continue to working out. But I, I wonder if there's something to it, not skating for a couple of maybe let's say a month now, it, it, like ne- this coming summer, because you know, there's going to be a compressed season with the Olympics coming up. And given that this season is going to stretch into July, like, I wonder if more players should go back to the model you had where, okay, you can work out, you can stay in physical shape, but you don't need to be skating every single week of the summer. Right. I I'm, I've run this by you many times and I've talked to many people. Now I've been talking to some specialists who deal with fitness and training and, and, I'm coming to the conclusion that my take that you really don't improve your skating past 18 years old is correct. Mm. At least the style, you can always become stronger, more explosive that half second, but being more explosive, since it's new to what you're used to as a skate, it might change another technical aspect of your skating. But I think the easiest way I can explain is this, is if you're a hunched over skater, you're going to always be a hunched over skater. You might improve how you skate hunched over. Mm. If you're a long stand up, Jeff Carter stride, but you know, he never has to work on his skating. You know, there's just something like, so uh, maybe you don't have to be out there every day. Fitness is different from technique. You know, you have to be, and you've got to work the skating muscles. And basically the best way to do that is to skate. Uh, you can do slide boards and you can do, you know, a lot of other things, but uh, I, I, I just like to, you know, and I, I think there's, I think there's a mental issue again. What I don't want to discourage anyone from going out there and trying to improve whatever they do in life sure. and whatever the technique is, but how much is it going to affect Dustin Brown? I mean, he's, he's, he's thousand games. He's two, taking another two weeks, two months off is not going to affect his career at this time. If you're 14 and 15 and 16, that's a whole different thing. But at this stage, I think he can afford that. And and maybe we are, and I don't have the numbers. I've seen it pointed out that a player like Dustin Brown and a player like Jason Spezza and a player like Joe Thornton and put, you know, they may have taken advantage of the time off uh, to just rest, just to rest things that they never, ever, ever had a chance to, to heal 100%. Maybe some of those guys are, are benefiting from that. Yeah. I I think it, it might be instructive for players to elongate their career. I mean, players are already playing on, on, on the whole, on average longer than they have before. Um, I, I just wonder if there's going to be more elongated careers yeah. as a result of maybe things that have been learned over the pandemic. You know, we talk all the time about, you know, there are some positives to take away from this ex- collective experience we've had in the pandemic. And I wonder if this is one of them to just to 
take take more time and maybe it's instructive for all of us in life right to to take more time for yourself for your mental and physical health when you need it if if i can share something specific alex you know near the end of my career yes i was doing some some drills and you know i had i had a very quick turnover rate with my footwork when i skated i wasn't a long skater i was a sprinter type of thing versus a speed skater say and you know, I, I listened to some coaches and I was trying to do some drills and, you know, elongate your stride a little bit. Now, again, I, this is, I'm 27 by this time. Yes, it improved that. But then, you know what? Now I'm in a different position when I'm receiving a pass. And, it, you know, I just that, that I, I, I felt it was affecting my game. And also because I had to think about it. I, it, the changes that they were trying to make, I had to think about those changes. And, and I don't know, we know what hockey is. It's a split second sport. And if you're thinking, you're done. It's interesting. Uh, there, there was one other topic I was going to get to. I'm going to put that on the shelf uh, regarding uh, on ice technology and, uh, and stuff that makes you say, get off my lawn. I'm going to shelve that for next week. Uh, because I, the, the NHL is going to be in Lake Tahoe this weekend. And uh, there have been some articles on NHL.com about the inspiration for this game. Uh, there, was a, there have been a couple of instances in the NHL's history where they've gone into a pond, shot a commercial. They, they posted a video from the 2000 All-Star game. They had Gretzky and Gordie Howe and Eric Lindros and Yarmy Yager, and that was pretty cool. But, but the lineage of this particular game, and in fact, all outdoor games, traces itself back to a movie that you were a part of, Jim, Mystery Alaska. And, and I had heard that, you know, people who had watched that movie were inspired to try something, and that led to uh, the, you know, them trying this. Uh, uh, the movie was in 1999, right? Um, I think it was 99, right? No clue. I can't remember past <laughs> 2019. You're supposed to help me on this. <laughs> You're the one getting the royalty checks still. <laughs> I will say the biggest royalty check I received, I received two days ago because it's been all over. It's been yeah. on NHL Network. It's been all the reruns. So I think I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's my net is $1.19. So oh, you're, you're taking me out to dinner. Then. Big, big. <laughs> uh, so the inspiration then from that movie led to the Cold War game. Uh, Michigan, Michigan State, Spartan Stadium, which led to the Heritage Classic, which led to the Winter Classic. And now we're kind of rewinding here to this outdoor game in Lake Tahoe. So I wanted to ask you about the experience filming Mystery Alaska. Um, Where was your portion done? And uh, what was it like working on that movie? And and, and what were some of your memories, maybe a story or two from working on that? Yeah, yeah. Interesting how I got involved. David E. Kelly was the writer, maybe producer. I get a call. Uh, hold for David E. Kelly. Now, I'd known David, just by no means were we friends, even acquaintances. I played in some old-timer games with him because uh, he's a, you know, decent, he's a real good hockey player, college. So very quiet man i mean very quiet you know you're in a locker room and you know you're you're playing these old timer games and you you everyone's pumped up and he, he just seemed to me such a quiet uh 
intellectual man. Man, was, is he talented? I mean, his writing skills are through, through the roof. But so I get the call and, and oh yeah, hold on. Okay, yeah, hey, Jim, uh, I've got this movie I'm doing that I'd like you to be, okay, yeah. Okay. And, and then he said, well, you know, um, we have this old timer tournament coming up. It's age-based and I'd like you to play on our team, you know, come in and be one of the ringers and, you know, help out. And, you know, based on what you're saying, 199, I can't remember specifically, and I, I do the math here, but I was too young to play in the tournament. <laughs> and David was not aware of that case. So I had to say, well, David, I'm not, I'm not old enough. To, you know, that I just, you have to be, you know, say it's over 40, over 30, whatever it was. And I hadn't met that yet. So he still gave me the part, although I think in all honesty, and I haven't talked to him about it since. I don't think I, I don't maybe have seen him once or twice since that. I think he was <laughs> trying to bait me. And, and give me the movie part as a bonus to me playing in this tournament. And since I didn't play in the tournament, he was going to pull the part, oh. <laughs> but he didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was for real. They sent me the script and I had like, you know, I had five or six lines. I had, you know, I was did my, with Mike Myers, my scene where I was the, basically just me interviewing a Don Cherry esque type of you know, intermission host. And, um, you know, we, I saw the lines. I really didn't put much thought into it. I thought it was just, you know, I just didn't think it was for real. Then I got the call to go and do wardrobe, you know, a couple of weeks before you're, you're on set, wardrobe. And while I was there, you know, you see, okay, now, now it's, this is for real. You can see that these, you know, professionals, you know, jacket, pants, everything, you know. Then I get there the, the the morning of our shooting. We only shot for one day, my part, but they had stand-ins for me. Like they had a guy my size who would go <laughs> onto the set and sit in the position I was sitting and they do all, you know, the measuring and the lighting and to see, you know. So I was just in my room, my, my dressing room, and they had other people. And I'm going, wow, now this is, it, it hit me then that this is a, a motion picture. <laughs> like they're actually, this is for real. A $28 million budget, apparently. I mean, it was, I didn't, it just never dawned on me that I was in the middle of a movie. Then they had breaks for food or catering. Then I knew I was on a movie set. I can tell you, I've been to soirees, I've been to banquets, I've been to White House, I've been to, no one eats as well as people do on set. They had it, as far as I could tell, it was 24 hours a day, it was full spreads of any type of food you wanted. Uh, remember doing the first scene? I had to, you know, turned to uh, Mike Myers and asked him a question. And I did. And he had his answer. His, his answers basically were unscripted. They were all just off the cuff, cuff ad lib. He had a theme. We had a theme. We're watching the game, obviously the mystery Alaska game, but he could just go off. So I asked the first question he answered and then I'm just stunned. I'm like a deer in the headlights. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. I know what my next 
I mean, I, but I, and I just looked at the camera and I said, um, I'm supposed to ask another question here, aren't I? So they, they can do takes, right? They do a million. After that first one, I don't think I really had to do any more takes over again. But I do remember cracking up a, a couple of times. I just, I cracked up, you know, when, when Mike Myers was doing his, his, you know, he was spoofy and, you know, outrageous. And, and I was, you know, just kind of breaking up. So uh, great experience. We, we filmed it all in Culver City on a soundstage. They had a green screen because I know when we, they played it back, we were up in uh, Mystery, Alaska, and, uh, you know, basically overlooking the, the rink. Uh, is basically where we were televising the game from, but uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have to travel at all. Just uh, did everything here in Culver City. Is that on the Sony lot? Yeah, Culver? exactly. Right on the Sony lot. I grew up. I, well, I grew up. I my first year in LA, I was in uh, Manhattan Beach. I always tell people that, right? I like to brag. My first address was forty two fourteen The Strand, Manhattan Beach, California nine zero two six six, and. Uh, but then I moved to Culver City, uh, right to Summertime Lane, which was uh, Overland and Jefferson, which is, poof, I could walk yeah. to the Sony lot. It, a, lot of, a lot of history there. A lot of oh, history tons. in Culver. A lot of history. There's, uh, the, there's that old time uh, movie studio uh, over by the Hotel Culver, um, the Culver Hotel, whichever. I've, I've, I've stayed in the place once. Beautiful hotel. Uh, I, you know what, Alex? I, I've only been there twice now, and it's, it's both in the last five years. Yeah. The, the lounge at the Culver That's Hotel. amazing. Beautiful. It, it brings you back to the 30s or mm -hmm. wherever, it, but it, there's a feel in there, a vibe that was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and the whole area. I mean, you, you were telling me that, you know, Culver City, you know, it, when when you were first living there, like, yeah, okay, it was fine. But now it's it's oh, just, uh, every time cuisine. I go over there, I, I love it. You know, I have the restaurant, gastropub, restaurants, yeah. every, you know, but that Culver Hotel has been there forever. And yes. you know what? I, I, I don't think they've changed much. And that is, the, that's the key. It's a great place to visit. And the rooms are still very, very old time. That was one of the first places I, I stayed coming here uh, before I interviewed for the job uh, at the Hotel Culver. Um, all right. Well, we're going to transition on. Uh, you had a chance to catch up with uh, with Ray Ferraro. What, the context for, for this interview, uh, I know we're, we're still kind of on the theme reverse retro and going back to the 90s, right? Yeah, we're, 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 we're shooting some some special features that, you know, air on our Fox sports telecasts. Uh, I know the Kings use some of it for their website and different things, but uh, preceding games in which the Kings will wear the reverse retro, they've tried to get a, a veteran player, an older player, retired player, and match them up with a younger current King. So the first one was Kelly Rudy and Cal Peterson. Uh, Ray Ferraro and Gabe Velarde. So that's the how it's so. And then, you know, I, I say, well, I might as well take advantage of, you know, Kelly and Ray. And when we do these, and so we stay on for an extra 10 minutes after and just, you know, just chat and ask questions and see if we can get up to date on what's going on with them. And, and we'll use it for our podcast. So mm -hmm. able to do that. And uh, you talk about retro. When I started with Ray, first question was this, Ray, hey, Ray, tell us about your first goal. It's a beauty. It's awesome. There's no video of it, so I can make this up however I want. Ray Newfeld slap shot. We're on the power play in the Montreal form. Hits me on the inside of the left knee and goes between Doug Sotart's legs. So I like to say it was a slap shot. It just wasn't mine. <laughs> 
That's right. It's good sometimes not to have that video review that we see so many times nowadays. But I'm going to jump right in, Ray. Um, players that catch your eye nowadays, you know, three, four, five of those guys that really jump out at you. I know there's some that are going to be obvious, uh, but maybe then some that are just kind of closer to, to your heart, so to speak, and that, you know, they catch your attention and, and you really think they're exciting to watch. Well, I mean, the obvious, of course, is, is McDavid and McKinnon. Yeah. Rysidal Matthews. I mean, those, those guys are, are just so good. And it like right now, as we're, as we're taping this, and Matthews is on a 15 game point streak. He scores every game. Like it, it's like, he's playing Bantam. His, his, but his game is just expanded into a 200 foot sort of monster game. He's, he's amazing to watch. Connor McDavid, I, I think he is, I think he's the greatest skater in the history of the game. His, his agility and speed and that, what he can do with that speed is astounding. Dreisaitl is, is just this powerful beast that can pass and, you know, pass the puck, shoot the puck. He's got a heavy shot. And McKinnon is just, it, McKinnon to me looks like he's playing the whole game downhill. Like every time he gets it, he's like, he's going faster than everybody else. He's more powerful than everybody else. I just, I just, I love, I love watching him play. And there's a, there's a ferocity to, to his, his compete. Now the, the guys, like there's a couple under the radar guys that I really, really like. Um, you see him a lot in, in Arizona, but I, I love Connor Garland. I just, I think he is a, he's a dynamic energetic little guy and maybe I kind of you know I kind of default to that but man I think he's a terrific player I think he's one of the best bargains in the league at about eight hundred thousand dollars a year uh the other is Jonathan Huberto in Florida man what a player and he's just you see like he's matured physically he's a man he's strong he's creative he's got great skill and if he wasn't playing in Florida and he was playing in a major market more people would know how good a player he is. But there, there's also the two others. I left these two for last, Foxy, because they're, they're among my favorite players to watch, to play together. Um, and, and that's Patrice Bergeron and, and David Pasternak. Uh, Bergeron just does the right thing every time. I'm sure he's made a mistake somewhere in his career, but it's, it doesn't come to my mind. <laughs> I think Pasternak is, is an amazing player. He's tough. He can score. He's got, he's slick. He's got style. He's got a great personality. I, um, man, the game is in great shape with these guys. You brought up Matthews and, and I'm going to ask you how much experience you have with it and how much you think is part of the game, but the stick technology and how they use the sticks. Like I guess golfers use their golf clubs. Well, same. It, it really is the same thing. I mean, just just think if you, you know, let's go back 100 years to when me and you play. And, you know, the sticks came out of the, you know, you got a shipment of sticks and that was it. And you could maybe say, could I get a little more toe hook or, you know, could I change the lie a little bit? And that was pretty much it. Now they can change the release point, the kick point, the flex, the, you know, like it's such a finely tuned instrument. And it's the same with a golfer, you know, like they want a little more loft on the club. So maybe the flex point moves down the shaft or they want to hit it lower and they move it up the shaft. 
So this technology that the players are able to take advantage of, it, it allows them to shoot pucks, I think, A, harder, but B, from bad spots, better than, than ever before. So like Austin Matthews has an unbelievable technique. Um, but if the puck is in his feet, he can get rid of it to a place that, that players even five or six years ago couldn't do. And a lot of that, yes, is his, is his work and his skill and his gift. But a lot of it also is, is the technology of the stick. I'd, I'd like to see these guys, and a few teams have done it, like give them old sticks and have yeah. the guys with them. And they're like, oh, my God, like the thing's like a rock when it comes off here. And it doesn't jump. And, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, like uh, we see like uh, our young kid, Kaliev, uh, again, Matthews. All, but nowadays, you don't have to be skating like you were talking about to get a lot on your shot. You don't need momentum built up. You just need to kick that stick and bang it. Let the whip well, take care, take over. Kaliev scored a goal in the, uh, in the World Juniors in the gold medal game. And the puck was behind him. Mm -hmm. And he was <laughs> dead stopped. And it's like, there's no way he should have been able to deliver it like that, except he can, like now he can. And it, it was, it was a bullet. And I'm like, like that, that's ridiculous how that came off. Take me to the Kings Stanley Cups in 12 and 14. And what you remember about those teams? I remember one night or one morning rather in New Jersey, walking at breakfast with Mike Altieri and how nervous he was. And I was like, Mike, you guys got this now. It was three, nothing in the series. I'm like, you know, like this is, or maybe it was three, one at the time. I'm like, you guys are, it was three, one. And I'm like, you guys are going to put this away. Like you guys are the better team. You're going to win. It was like, he couldn't even drink his coffee. And just to see how much it meant to Mike and then to Luke, you know, to be able to talk to them. And then, you know, you know, like you, you were working, so it was different, right? Like, and this is, but you, there's a connection that to being with the Kings organization, all these years of close or maybe not so close and now right there. And you're like, man, you guys got to put this away. Like I was, I felt, even though I was working the series for TSN, I was nervous for them as it gets into overtime. And you're like, man, they better win this now. You know, and then Martinez scores and you're like, but there was a feeling of, man, they got to win now or it could go away. Yeah. And it was just, it was so cool to see so many people that had been there so long be able to rejoice in, the, in that championship and, and watching it and then seeing the, the fans respond the way they did was, oh, it was just awesome. I just loved it. Wish I could have been part of it. All right, it's always fun to catch up with Ray Ferraro. He's one of the uh, one of the nicest people. He, he, I, and I, we joke all the time. He'll talk your ear off. But uh, I, I'm so glad I had a chance to call a game with Ray uh, up in Vancouver, uh, uh, start of last season uh, on on NBC Sports. He, he's a great character, and uh, hope hope to get to work with him again sometime soon. Uh, I know the nickname or great ball of hate is one of them, but. Uh... <laughs>
really a great ball of energy, right? I mean, oh Ray is just nonstop. <laughs> during the game, like he'll chat your ear off, like, or, or with the, uh, the producer, he'll be on the horn with him during the game, just like having a separate conversation. It's great. I, I love it. Uh, and, and he and Gordon Miller are every year on the world juniors and on the world championships and on Leafs telecasts and senators telecasts. Like they, they are, um, one of the great uh, duos in, in NHL broadcasting. I, I really enjoy watching them. Uh, wanted to get to, uh, we didn't get a chance to get all of our listener questions in last week. So I have four left over here uh, that we'll get to here. Let me start off here. Uh, let's let's give a, a question about a uh, kind of direct hockey topic here. Uh, this is from Man We of War 71 who asks, uh, since all games are intra-division, do you see an increasing trend of tasting, uh, taking icing-type shots at empty nets with a one-goal lead as opposed to two? Uh, because it always seems worth it because of the four-point swing. It's an interesting question. I, I, To be honest, I think we have seen this going back perhaps two years. Uh, there was, and I apologize for not being able to come up with the exact year or date or season, but I think it's at least two years now in the books where the analytics have been presented to teams, the teams presented to the players, and they take shots at that empty net. Hmm. Way more than in the past. It used to be get to the red line, don't risk the icing, do whatever you can, get to the red line, then take your shot. Now it is get the puck, take the shot. Yeah. And if it's icing... You live with it. So I, I don't have any raw de- uh, data with that, but I'm pretty sure, you know, and then, then now with the analytics, they can take a look at how many face-offs you win after an icing, all those types of things, uh, you know, what the percentages are. When And I, I think that's just the numbers for them are to the point where I don't think it's overwhelming, but the predominance would say that, the odds are the risk reward ratio is take a shot at the empty net. So I don't think it has to do with the division sense, issue. Like it used to be, well, you don't want to risk the icing because you're tired, you lose the face off and they'll automatically score. And, but you think about what it would take to, to score in the national hockey league, the shooting percentages, right? If, you know, a good shooting percentage is 12% of your shots going. That's a really good shooting percentage. So in those situations, Okay, how what percent of the time do people actually score? If I hit the empty net, game's over, right? Like that, it's a binary outcome. It's either game over or game continues with a chance to score. Like I look at it like well, it kind of makes sense now that you think about it a little bit more. The 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 numbers this year are up. Yeah, six on five goals when you pull your goaltender. Yeah, they're up. And I think that it's it's any. It, I think the it falls into the category of cycles that power plays and penalty kills go through where where you know for a two-year span this certain thing will work and then everything catches up and the adjustments made take away that advantage and then you find something else i, I think that's what's happened right now because the pulling the goaltender right now is uh you know right now the defenders are having a more difficult time we've been on the receiving end of that a couple times mm-hmm I don't think it was as a result directly out of icing, but uh, that's like the worst. That's one of the worst feelings in hockey is when you concede an extra attacker goal late to to have the game tied. You're shell shocked. Well, I can, I can tell you, I, I remember it again through the Stanley cup watching the games when that happened 
And you know, the other team's in your zone, right? Right. right. You're holding, they're going to be there. And instead of watching the play, I have to admit, I just looked at the net. <laughs> I did not take my eyes off the net. Now, Quickie's in goal for most of those. And I don't remember many getting through him, if any, in that situation. Yeah. End of game where the other team just all over you. But I just could not think about anything, you know, how they're moving the puck around. I'm just looking at the net and that is limiting my options to it's either in or it's not. Mm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. don't worry about it. And uh, that was my, my way of coping with that pressure situation. <laughs> uh, here's a question from uh, at Biff plays hockey. Uh, McFly, McFly, uh, Staples Center. What has your been? What's been the biggest adjustment in terms of calling games? Does the lack of fan reaction may make you pay closer attention to plays that may require more analysis for casual fans? I'll leave that to you first, and then I've got a take on this. Um, the urgency is less because the atmosphere is different. Uh, so maybe. There is less emotion and more analysis. Maybe there is. I wouldn't doubt if that would be the case. Uh, hopefully you get a little bit of both. The games we've done at Staples Center, even though there's no fans in attendance, I do find it more of a normal, I can get into the game easier. Whereas the road games we do off a monitor, I do find myself disconnected from that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I look at it like sometimes you do need a bit of an audio aid for a play that you don't see, especially if you're screened or, you know, things happen so fast. And, you know, if you have glass seats, you'll see if a puck goes off the post uh, or, you know, if something happens in front and like you'll, you'll gasp. Uh, it's just a natural reaction. So when you have thousands of people doing that, um, like you, you'll, you'll play off that. No doubt. Um, I am with you. I think the, the home games are surprisingly normal and, and maybe I, maybe at times like you, you get into a tendency and this, you know, like, I'm just speaking from a broadcasting perspective in general, uh, to try to not force it, but to have your energy level up knowing that there's nobody in the building, um, and try to keep that level up to, to keep the viewer engaged at home because, hockey's still an exciting sport, you know, whether there are people in the building or not. Uh, and I think we try to convey that as best we can, but yeah, it, it is weird to, to go on the road and, and not have that. You know what I'm finding Alex that we're, yeah. we're I'm giving some, some thought here. Cause again, uh, we've talked about, I mentioned it every three or four podcasts. I, I really don't like to know the questions ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I, I, there are some times where we have to prepare a little bit of what's going on for the, but I like to just go into just, you ask or we talk and we just mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. uh, but now that I've given a little thought, I, I, I am more affected now by whether the Kings are winning or losing in the game. Hmm. And, you know, I would say under normal circumstances, the building, whether it's the road, the home, the fans and the energy, I, I'm caught up in the game and I'm not as concerned at the time with the score. Now I find myself, if the Kings are up, I'm feeling really good. And if the Kings are down, I'm feeling real bad. And I can't get out of that rut. I just well, can't. I, well, I get, don't you find I get dragged that, like, into it. 
you're in an empty building and you know especially when we were losing games at home right uh, and and we're losing i don't know by two goals or something and we're not playing all that well and you just look around and be like what are we doing here like we're losing this game playing in front of nobody and we're not playing all that well and i find myself just asking like, what are we doing here why are we doing this and then you know you realize it's 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 a it's a bigger <laughs> thing that we're trying to do or we're trying to entertain people at home yeah. that ordinarily you know would be at the game even if it is a loss that we're describing at the moment. And if the Kings are up to nothing, I'm going, why, why don't we do this more? <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> easy. It's easy to play without fans. There are no distractions in there. Uh, we, we were talking about reverse retro a little bit. Uh, you and Ray Ferraro getting together for that interview. Uh, at C. Ramirez uh, Calif, uh, as in California, asks, what are your favorite Kings uniforms all time? And where does the reverse retro fit into that conversation? It's, man, it's going to seem very, very commercial. By far, the current reverse retro. Because it incorporates the coloring scheme that I played under. The logo is different. And I know some people you know, love, love the crown. And, but I, I just think that that color scheme is... And when we were playing, I mentioned it before, I always thought we should have had white with purple and gold trim. And they had the gold with, you know, white and purple trim. This, the, the brightness of the current ones, crispness, the, the logo, which takes you to a different time than the color scheme. Uh, I, I, I'm, that's where I am, you know, and again, I, 12 and 14 Stanley Cup, Completely different color scheme. I I just those are the best times in the King's history. But my heart, I love the color scheme, and I love the way they incorporated a logo that didn't belong with that color scheme. Yeah, it it took a lot of different parts of our history and kind of melded into one. I I don't know. I hate to be in full agreement here, but I honestly. If you ask me today, I, I, and and granted, the black and white is distinctive in its own right. I would take the reverse retro color scheme logo. I would take all of it and make it our primary look today, without question, because there's nobody in the NHL that looks like that. Not a single team has a look that's like that. The only thing I would change in the reverse retro thing, and this is a totally selfish ask on my end, the uh, what what I call the broadcast panel, the number on the side of the jersey you cannot read it from far away. And so the first game uh, that, that they wore him at home, I found myself like, I don't know who that guy is. Like, I know he's a right shot versus a left shot, but uh, I, I couldn't figure out the numbers. That would be the only nitpick I had on it. I, I agree with you. It's, it's interesting. Um, you know, even the, the black and white jersey with the big LA crest on the front, that was not uh, a primary jersey until I think the the – 11 12 season i think it was still being mixed in in the in the years leading up to the the stanley cup seasons and i I, like i wasn't working for the kings at the time but i always felt the jersey that they wore beforehand the one with the los angeles along the the waist the the apron of the jersey i always felt it was a little strange it was a little vestige of the the 90s and you know buffalo had a similar thing it just it didn't it didn't look right there was something off about it um and obviously you win two Stanley cups with a, a particular look it, it, it's gonna 
you know, it's going to be a, a long part of your, your history and, and it's, it's our logo. And, and quite frankly, the typeface, when you look at the typeface that, that the LA is, and when you go to the, the King's office and you see that typeface on the wall, it's the same one that's been in use since 1999. In theory, there are a lot of the design elements, including a Jersey I'm looking at that's right behind you, Jim, uh, and marking your 25th anniversary with the club, the, the number on the back, the typeface for the number, hasn't really changed in a good 20 years. So I, it's, and you know, anytime there's something new and distinct, your eyes immediately go to it. And, oh, that's cool. But I, I'm with you. I love, I love this reverse retro Jersey more, more than the primaries. I don't know. Uh, one more question and then we'll end. This is from uh, Earl Skakel who said he's a, a a comic and he uh he woke up too late to answer ask us this question i know beforehand. Earl. oh you do okay uh well he, wo- he woke up too late to ask us this before- when we taped our last podcast jim why did nobody go after ed uh hospital for beating up marcel dion twice in the in the 1981 playoff brawl that is a i think that's going to be on uh earl's uh tombstone <laughs> I've seen this question asked of us. Every time I talk to him, <laughs> he's always, I was standing beside Ed at one point in that thing until he clocked me with a punch to the, he warned me first a couple of times and then he clocked me. But uh, no, uh, that's, that's a good question. It's, it's something that I assume that a lot of players on that team do not look upon it as the best moment in our history. Uh, we were fourth overall that year in the regular season and, you know, short playoff series. Best of five, right? Uh, it might even be best of three then. Oh, wow. might have been best of three. You know, I, I can't. Uh, probably best of five. But, you know, just, just not able to get it done. And then when you look back, you wonder all those little team bonding things that should have been done. So um, I think. Earl, he, 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 he has a point, but uh, he also, I think, is a little uh, preoccupied with that moment. <laughs> he needs to get uh, over it. It was 30, no, no 40 but, uh, years ago there, now. There is, I mean, Marcel's your star. He's our star. Yeah. He's the star mm-hmm. of the league. And Eddie was able to get in, you know, yeah. into a position where he's, you know, I don't know if he had any punches that actually got in or not, you know, but they, he was able to get to Dion and that's something that, that should not have happened. Dion Taylor and Simmer all had more than a hundred points. Charlie and Marcel had more than 55 goals apiece. Different time a little bit. Although I do love that you could play the New York Rangers in the first round of the playoffs. I, I still argue that, uh, you know, we should go through one through 16 and have a, you know, a tournament would just you know doesn't matter geography maybe maybe the pandemic we can keep it tight in terms of travel but i want to be able to play whatever team out there in the playoffs travel's not an issue anymore did you fly commercial for the playoffs that year did you charter i would say i think we fly, flew commercial uh, okay. I, I i can't I, I know there were certain times during regular season we would charter in back-to-backs and you know just depending on the city you're going to and what the flight schedule was uh-huh all those types of things. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, even as far back as then, I, th- I do not think we chartered, uh, mm. you know, especially when the schedule was set out far enough in advance where you could, you know, actually get there commercially without 
too much of an issue. If I'm wrong on that, I apologize. I, I just, I do just don't remember the luxuries of, uh, of what we've been able to experience with the charter flights and how you can, you can kind of maybe live your life on your terms as opposed to the schedule of the airlines. A little different, a little different, a little more money in the game uh, nowadays compared to back then. Uh, anything uh, here before we wrap up and, and say goodbye? Oh, keep going. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting to a point, hopefully where, you know, we, we just saw it last night as we tape uh, fans in attendance in Arizona, uh, safely, hopefully, you know, everything is always has the, the priority there, but, uh, one game at a time, right? One day at a time. Yeah. But I, I, Alex, I do find myself getting ahead of myself thinking, oh, it, we're kind of, we're kind of, we're getting over a hump here. And I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that vaccination will will solidify that getting over the hump. I'm looking at March 12th, 2022. To kind of sort of feel like this one is year. in the rearview mirror. One, basically, one, basically, it would be a two-year in total yep. thing, and that would mark two years from the day the NHL uh, shut down uh, at the start of the pandemic. I actually went back and I, I rewatched the the start of that game a couple times uh, last summer just to kind of, you know, we're, <laughs> it, it won't be like that for a little while, but we'll get there. We'll get, well, I promise we'll get there. All right. So uh, thanks to our producer, Jesse Cohen. Uh, we have a, we have a big show for you next week. We're hoping to get Rob Blake in to do a, a conversation with us uh, on a, on a whole number of topics, uh, Kings and non-Kings related. But uh, until then, hit the subscribe button. And we hope to see you uh, very soon. Keep, uh, keep supporting the podcast. Keep watching uh, us on uh, Fox Sports West. And we'll see you later.